0: Well, this morning, I want to begin with a secret. Is that okay? Okay. Here's the secret. When you get married, you don't just marry your spouse, but you marry their entire family. Amen? Amen. And your family's way of doing things isn't necessarily the way that all families function. Amen? Amen? Okay. Sometimes it's not just different it 's downright disturbing, downright disturbing, like that really weird jello salad that they always serve at Thanksgiving. Um, now i 'm married into a great family i love I love my in laws this is this is kind of nervous my mom 's sitting next to to my wife, um, but tracy uh, well. She loves my family, too. Don't worry, Mom. But she does find some of our conversations a little disturbing. The Hall family has a real knack for dark humor. It's been a tried-and-true coping mechanism of ours for years. And let's face it, like making light of scary or difficult situations can kind of be helpful at times. And humor is a great way to relieve tension. Those of you who are married will remember the first time that you brought your future spouse to meet your parents. That's a moment that has a lot of tension, right? Like, oh gosh, you really want them to like them? You really want your future spouse to not think that your family's super weird yet? Um, But at the same time, you don't want them to like them too much because you're not sure that you like your own family too much and you're you're super self-conscious. There's a lot going on there. And when my Mother introduced my father to my grandmother as her boyfriend. My grandmother handled the situation by looking at my father and saying, You've picked a real lemon in the garden of love. Like like, what a terrible thing to say. Like I don't even really understand what it means, but I don't think you want to be a lemon in the garden of love, right? Like I don't know, maybe a rose or something. And while you can sit there and go, like, gosh, like Matt, your grandmother sounds like a terrible person. For my dad, it was actually probably kind of helpful, right? Like, here's this person who you want to win over. And my grandmother, instead of being fiercely on my mother's side, is already like, dude, I'm on your side. Like, she's a lemon. Like, you picked a lemon. Uh, And so suddenly, my dad doesn't have to worry so much about impressing his maybe future mother-in-law, and he can just enjoy the meal. My grandmother was a formidable woman. She was intimidating, so I'm sure that it was helpful. But there's also... Something that's really sweet sometimes in those moments of humor. There's something sweet in in that negative humor, but they can also be done in a bad way, in a negative way, in an inappropriate way. And there are some people who just don't know the time and place for that kind of dark humor. Like, have you guys ever been around somebody who just makes terribly inappropriate comments at, like, the worst times? Maybe, maybe that is you. Sometimes it can be me. I'm pretty good about not doing that, I think. Uh, Maybe my wife disagrees. Now, there's also some people who will say terrible and inappropriate things without even a hint of humor. Like, they just have no filter, and they just say the first thing that comes to their mind, and their spirit is just full of negativity, and they'll say the worst things. Like, how many of you guys are familiar with this lady? So this is Rachel Dratch playing the character Debbie Downer. It's an SNL skit that started in the, I don't know, the 90s, a long time ago, uh, Stone Ages. And the idea behind the Debbie, Don- uh, Debbie Downer sketch is that she's going to say the most inappropriate, depressing things, and everybody around her is just going to have to like, deal with it. And so the character gets introduced in the sketch where they're all at Disneyland, and it has like the who's who of SNL cast members from the 90s. You have Jimmy Fallon and... Uh, Amy Poehler and Tina Fey in there, uh, and the, the guest star, uh, the host for the night, is Lindsay Lohan, and so they're all at this table uh, at a Disney World character breakfast, right? You're in the happiest place on earth, and Debbie Downer is there ruining everything. So the waiter comes out, Keenan uh, Thompson, and he, he asks Jimmy Fallon's character uh, what he'd like to order, and uh, Jimmy Fallon says, oh, I'd like a steak and eggs, and Debbie responds, well, hold on. If you've seen the show, you know that every time Debbie has a line, a sad trombone sound follows. So can we practice our sad trombone together? OK? are you ready? Wah, wah. OK, good. I, I want more, though, more. OK. What? Awesome. So I'm going to read you some of these Debbie lines, and then you guys are going to respond with a sad trombone. So Jimmy orders steak and eggs, and Debbie says, "Ever since they found mad cow disease in the U.S, I'm not taking any chances." It can live in your body for years before it ravages your brain. And then when Pluto shows up, she greets Pluto by saying, must be fun to work here. Although the biggest drawback to working at a theme park is you must live under constant fear of deadly terrorist attacks. And when Pluto suddenly leaves, probably to get security, uh, she adds, with that costume on, he's probably in the early stages of heat stroke. The best part of the sketch is that she cracks everybody up, including herself. They're, like, crying. They're laughing so hard. And I've seen the sketch a bunch. uh, But one of the things that I've only just noticed this weekend is that uh, one of the actors who's trying to keep it together, he's, like, grabbing the napkins on this table set. And he's, he's wiping away his tears, and they just run out of napkins. And so he grabs the, like, prop waffle, and he starts drying his tears with a prop waffle. It's just ridiculous. So while my grandmother used... Uh, humor to welcome my dad into the family, Debbie is managing to push everybody and anybody away from Pluto to the friends that she's in Disney World with. And what a bummer it would be to have someone there constantly reminding you of the suffering in the world, like feline AIDS and anthrax and terrorist attacks, just complaining all the time, managing to ruin the happiest place on Earth. But even worse than being stuck with a Debbie Downer is being a Debbie Downer, right? So if you are just so obsessed with everything that's wrong in the world, you're missing out on everything that's good, on everything that's lovely, on everything that's pure and true. You're missing out on the smell of the Pirates of the Caribbean. Like that smell when you walk in, is just so good. You're missing out on a churro, like a, I don't know, like a Chiro from Disneyland. (laughs) You're missing out on riding Thunder Mountain during the fireworks because you're so concerned that a firework is going to go astray and, I don't know, blow up the track or something. And while being a Debbie Downer is terrible, being a Debbie Downer is really terrible. We may not say it out loud like Debbie, but sometimes our internal dialogue is a bit of a Debbie Downer sometimes we say things to ourselves. Sometimes we're focused on on the worst in a way that is just bringing us down no matter where we're at. Last night, Tracy and I went to the Sharks game. It was Patrick Marlowe's uh, retirement. Uh, his jersey was retired. as the first number that's been retired uh, for the Sharks organization. And it was jam-packed, which is something the Shark Tank hasn't been in years. And Um, As we're getting there, like, parking was frustrating. Like, I paid ahead of time, and then I show up, and it was $10 cheaper if I paid cash. Like, why didn't I get, like, that $10 discount? I wanted a $10 discount. And then, like, of course, I had to park, like, a billion miles away. I I hike all the way out there. Then we're, like, up in the boonies, and we're, like, in the middle, and we're, like, jam, squish in. It was, like, flying on Spirit Airlines. And we were there early because of the ceremony, And then the game started like over a half hour late. And so I just spent like most of my night, like folded in on myself. And there was like this real like struggle that I had to not be a Debbie Downer in that moment. I probably was a little bit, sorry, Tracy, as I'm like jam-packed in there. But it was a really cool event. And my Debbie Downer attitude was robbing me of something really cool. And our Debbie Downer attitude can rob us of something really cool when it comes to faith
1: unchecked cynicism is dangerous because cynicism is the opposite of faith
0: when we're cynical we're refusing to believe that god can do something great we're denying that anything good can come out of difficult situations and the cynicism of christians isn't just terrible for us it doesn't just ruin our own relationship with god and cause distance in that relationship It's also a terrible witness to the world. Nobody likes to hear from a Christian who's just obsessed with listing all the ways that the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Particularly other Christians. Like, what a bummer to just have
1: a list of everything wrong in the world over and over again. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not up here arguing for
0: blind optimism. I'm not arguing for a positivity that's so positive it's toxic. I'm not telling you to believe in the power of positive thinking. Because it's true that the world is pretty messed up. Sin has resulted in suffering. Globally, we're plagued with natural disasters. There's war, there's famine, there's tremendous poverty in the world, globally, internationally, and here in our own neighborhoods. There's social and political strife. And our own families are not immune from the impact of the fall of man, right? We have relational conflict, we have family feuds, struggling marriages, resentment and bitterness. American teenagers today cite loneliness as one of their greatest struggles at a time when most of them have a cell phone in their hand that allows them to talk to friends at
1: any time. And while technology might make these relationships more accessible, our
0: changing culture has resulted in a far greater shallowness of relationship. Isn't that ironic? We have better access to each other than ever before and a shallower relationship than ever before. And this isolation is not just from each other, but because of sin, apart from the saving work of Jesus, it's in our relationship with God. And we can look at all of this
1: brokenness We can become obsessed with all this brokenness. And we can forget Jesus. And when we forget Jesus,
0: we become blinded by our circumstances to the hope that we have in him. And not just our hope. The hope we have in Jesus is not just for ourselves. It's for everyone. It's for others. When we become Debbie Downers, we're robbing ourselves and others of the hope of Jesus. We're not supposed to be Debbie Downers. We're supposed to be hopeful Hannahs. This kind of missing hope, being blinded by our circumstances, is challenged and it's confronted in Acts chapter 3. Dr. Luke, the author of the book, tells us a story of a man with no hope to get what he actually needs, begging for not nearly enough on the doorsteps of God's temple. For decades, this man has been carried to the temple gates and left to beg. One of the foundations of the Jewish faith is kindness, showing kindness, giving alms. And so it's strategic that the lame man chooses this location to ask for help from people going up for prayer. It's not unusual for people who need help to come to places of worship. We see it here. And as people would come in to worship in the temple, they have to see him. And if they're coming in and they're purporting to be good Jews who are following the Jewish tenets, it's really hard to ignore their call to kindness, right? So he's placed himself in a place to take opportunity
1: of his own cynicism about people of faith. Because maybe if he's right outside of the place where they're
0: worshiping, they'll feel compelled to do what they're supposed to do which is to take care of the poor. It's ironic that the name of the gate that this man is placed at in Acts chapter 3, it's called Beautiful. That's a nickname that this gate has. And it's called Beautiful in part because it's made of Corinthian bronze. It's ornate. It looks gold. It's shiny. And the beauty of that gate stands in contrast to the ugliness of this man's situation. He's vulnerable. He's disabled in a society that offered little help for him.
1: and He's left to beg for charity from people who should strive to take care of him. This man knows something. He believes something.
0: This community has degenerated so much from their purpose, so much from their biblical obligations to the poor. That his best chance of surviving, his best chance of having food for the day is to manipulate and guilt trip them by his presence outside of their place of worship. It's in Deuteronomy where God's people are told, If among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. There's this radical call to generosity that God has for his people in Deuteronomy. And Luke highlights this irony because remember what we just studied last week. What happened last week? Last week we see the new church come together, right? And they had everything in common. So much so that they were actually selling property to see that the needs of others in their community were being met. And while the early church is a positive contrast, a contrast that we're challenged to live up to, this story is a sobering reminder that it's possible to attend religious services while ignoring the needs right in front of us. This situation at the beautiful gates reminds us of the ugliness of our own sin. This is something really sad about this man's life experience, about the cynicism that he has to carry. And there's something really sad about the cynicism of all those who walk by him and see him day after day, year after year, begging on the doorsteps of God's temple, largely ignored by God's people. But something unexpected happens, something this man wasn't even allowing himself to consider. Will you guys turn with me to Acts chapter 3? We're going to begin in verse 3. So seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple... He asked to receive alms, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at
1: us. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. He asked to receive alms, and it was only when he got a
0: response that he actually expected to get anything from them. This man was so used to begging and having people ignore him and walk right on by, not even make eye contact with him, that what caused him to notice was when somebody stopped and acknowledged him. What a beat down this man was living with. I once volunteered as a Salvation Army bell ringer. My grandmother got me into it. And I was standing next to that kettle outside of a, a kettle outside of a safeway, and I was ringing my bell for way too long. There is nothing more boring than ringing a Salvation Army bell. Like, that should be a punishment for crimes. Like, you got to stand here and you just got to ring a bell and watch people, like, duck on past you or ignore you, try try not to see you there. I can understand after a couple of hours of this
1: why this man didn't expect much. So we probably wasn't surprised when Peter said, I have no silver and gold. Yep, somebody else with nothing to give me. But then Peter says, what I do have, I give to you. This is a surprise. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. What was this man thinking? Like, dude, I've been lame
0: since birth. Like, I've been carried around my entire life. I'm old. I'm like in my 40s. I got nothing going on. Nothing going on. I would love to stand and walk. I don't even have
1: muscles in my legs. Any muscles that I was born with are completely atrophied. I can't stand up and walk. What happens next I want you to remember because it's important. Verse 7. And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. Sometimes we're told, if you
0: only have faith, good things will happen. If you have faith, good things will happen. And this can be a crushing burden to live with. The bad things in your life are because you don't have enough faith. But that's not the message of Christianity. The good news is not that you earn anything. The good news is that God doesn't need your faith to do a miracle. It's Peter's faith, actually, that's operating here, right? It's God working through Peter's obedience that leads to this man walking. All religion, Judaism, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, man-made religions, they all focus on people's effort to win God's favor. They always begin with what people must do. Your religion is far too optimistic about the human condition, right? Because it calls on people to do What we're incapable of doing, which is to earn the love of God. This man couldn't heal himself, and neither can we. We're stuck in our sinful condition. But biblical Christianity alone begins with the proclamation of what God has done. It begins with God, and we respond. It begins with God, and we respond. What does Peter say? He says, in
1: the name of Jesus Christ, stand and walk. Christ, Messiah, King, in the name of our King, stand and walk.
0: Biblical Christianity alone begins with the proclamation of what God has done and invites us to respond in faith. God initiates, we respond. That's the order. The Apostles' preaching always begins with an announcement of what God has done. God's acts in history, right? This is God's gospel. This is His good news: the substitutionary death of Jesus, the bodily resurrection, and His triumphant ascension. What God ascension? What God has done, not what we've done. What God has done. And so, when we're stuck in cynicism, it's often because we're stuck in what we can do to get out of our situations. When we think about our ability to impact change in the world, when we feel like things are in our control, we find ourselves feeling hopeless. And we're right because we're hopeless apart from God. What He does, what the Creator of the universe does. Look at what He's done from creation to cross. He took you, a sinner, and made you one of His saints. He's molding you into the image of His Son. And you did nothing to initiate it, and nothing to deserve it. And too often we take this good news for granted and we just allow it to be stale in our hearts. It's old news, boring. But it's not old news, it's good news. And for this lame man, this isn't boring.
1: This is a miracle. This is a miracle. And Peter took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong.
0: This isn't a little miracle. This isn't something that we can write off as being, I don't know, a psychological trick, like the man just conditioned himself to believe that he couldn't walk. No, this man couldn't walk. Witnesses had seen for decades that he couldn't walk. He's been begging for decades. This is the miracle of recreation. This man hadn't used his legs ever, and suddenly muscles grow, and his brain suddenly gains the understanding on how to walk. And I don't know if you've had toddlers recently. I have. It takes them a little while to learn how to walk. This man goes from walking or goes from
1: being lame to walking to leaping instantaneously he 's leaping and leaping up,
0: he stood and began to walk and he entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God all these years. this man has never been in the temple he 's only been outside of it because at this time, if you Uh, were disabled you would not be allowed in the temple which is terrible so this man has been kept out he's been kept out of a place of worship he's been kept out of society out of relationships so his healing here is not just physical it's social and it's spiritual this man's entire life has been transformed by one act
1: by one miracle and everybody's mind is blown And he's leaping, and he's praising God. Our sin would keep us out of a relationship with God, apart from the
0: saving work of Jesus. One of my children once hurt their leg. I'm going to try not to reveal who it was to protect the guilty. And they, it was like a little scratch. And they... Would see the scratch and be reminded that they had injured their leg, and they would like limp around. <laughs> and it wasn't just limping; it was like full-on, like crawling, just like overly dramatic. Like my leg is broken. My mother-in-law finally figured out that uh, if we just put pants on and hide the boo-boo, they can walk. <laughs> it was miraculous. Too often we're focused on the little scratches of life and we ignore the miracle that we've experienced.
1: You and I should be leaping. We were lame, but now we can leap.
0: And it's sinful for us to walk around with a limp. And it's not just sinful for us to walk around with a limp when we should be leaping, but it's selfish. Selfish. And it impacts others negatively. Because look at what happens. This man, he's praising God and leaping. And all the people saw him walking and praising God. And they recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. Your leaping will cause awe and wonder in the lives of others. Your leaping will cause awe and wonder in the lives of others. Stop limping. Start leaping. If you're consumed with cynicism, if you're limping when you should be leaping, I challenge you to ask the Holy Spirit to change your perspective. Look at what God has initiated in your life. I know your life's not perfect. Mine's not perfect either.
1: But look at what God has done and respond with joy. Let's take a minute. And just like a sentence or two, will you guys call out some things that God has done in your life? Some times where you were uh, limping and now you're leaping? God's shown you his love. I had cancer and I don't have cancer anymore. I could walk around and complain about having had cancer. But
0: how much more should I celebrate that I've, I've been cured, I've been healed? What are some other miracles that God has done in your life? Addiction. God's met you and freed you from addiction. Awesome. Amen. What are some things that God has done? Depression. God's healed you from depression. From fear. Look at the victories that we've had here. God's met us in physical ailment. He's met us in addiction
1: and mental health struggles. Where else has God met you? I know that there are stories that would encourage each other. Hmm? Unemployment, yeah. God meets us in these
0: places. He takes our pain. He does a work of miracle. He provides in a way that causes us to leap. And if we shared that story, how many more people would be leaping with us? How many more people would
1: recognize what God has done in your life and cause it to stir up a curiosity in them? One of my favorite C.S. Lewis books is The Screwtape Letters. It's
0: the story of a like, senior demon tormentor advising his young nephew in the, in the crafts of being a demon. And one of the things he says is that their job as demons is to distract
1: men from who God is and what he did. Let's not allow ourselves to be distracted anymore.
0: How has God showed up in your life? How has God's faithfulness borne fruit in your
1: life? How has God met you in your needs and taken you from lame to leaping? Leap. There's a lot that I really love about the lame man's example here.
0: He doesn't know all the answers. He's known the power of Jesus in his life for moments. And the Lord uses him to gather thousands.
1: The Lord uses him to gather thousands. And who's there? Peter. Peter. And the Holy Spirit works
0: through this man's leaping and joyous celebration of what God has done. And the Holy Spirit works through Peter and provides Peter to provide a teaching of what God has done. Let's look at verse 11. While he clung to Peter and John, all the people, utterly astonished, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. And when Peter saw it, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us, as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? I love this. Peter's like being very clear. This is not about me. This is about God. He says, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. Remember, I told you, God acts, we respond. So what does Peter do? He's telling the story of God's faithfulness to Jewish people for centuries, the God of Abraham who was faithful to Abraham when Abraham wasn't. The God of Isaac who was faithful to Isaac when Isaac wasn't. The God of Jacob who was faithful to Jacob when Jacob wasn't. The God of our fathers glorified his servant Jesus whom you delivered over in the presence of Pilate when Pilate had decided to release him. You denied the Holy and Righteous One and asked for a murderer to be granted to you and you killed the author of life whom God raised from the dead. To this we are witnesses. And by his name, by faith in his name, has made this man strong whom you see and know and the faith that is through Jesus has given the man the perfect health in the presence of you all. Don't deny what God has done in your life. Speak it boldly and with passion. God has done amazing things in your life and there's no story that's too small. Oftentimes we diminish what God does when we should be leaping and celebrating what God has done.
1: God is amazing. And our reaction to that amazement should be leaping. There's a time and a place to express heartache.
0: I said that my family's humor is a little dark. And there is this scene in Notting Hill. How many of you guys are familiar with that movie? Like, if you're over 30, you've seen that movie, right? Like, you can't avoid it. And, And frankly, like, if you're, like, flipping through the channels, back when we had channels to flip and it wasn't all just, like, digital, like, apps, if you caught Julia Roberts looking at Hugh Grant saying, just a girl standing in front of a boy asking her to love him. Like you have no choice. You just have to watch like you're in until the end of the movie at that point. It's like a law. And I love that scene. But one of my favorite scenes is the Brownie scene. You guys remember the scene? So Julia Roberts is playing this famous actress. Hugh Grant is playing like this awkward bookseller in London. And circumstances happen there's a meet cute like in all romantic comedies and they end up going on a date except Hugh Grant's character has forgotten that he's supposed to be at his awkward sister's birthday party with all of his friends and Anna Julia Roberts character decides to tag right on along and so they end up at this awkward family uh, and friend meal and at the end of the night there's one brownie left after dessert and so they decide on a contest Whoever has that most awkward, most depressing, the saddest lot in life gets the extra brownie. And so now they're all competing to be miserable. And we get stories of romantic failures, of aimless careers, of poor looks and tragic accidents. And it would be really depressing if the writer wasn't brilliant and just had that string of dark humor in there. And the film does this really remarkable thing, like this moment of all this dark humor. There's this moment of genuine vulnerability. And one of the characters, the woman who's been paralyzed in the accident, she shares something that she hadn't told anybody else, except her husband. That on top of being paralyzed, she can't have children. And there's a devastating silence. And then she says, Say lovey." We're lucky in lots of ways. Surely that's worth a brownie. Except it's not. Ultimately, spoiler, Hugh Grant's character gets the brownie, which I don't really understand. He's dating Julia Roberts. Um, and she seems like a mess. I don't want to, I wouldn't want to date her. But it seems like that should be something that would just not allow him to get the brownie. But he gets the brownie. But then Julia Roberts' character calls him out. Calls them all out. And they're like, you think, famous Hollywood actress, that you deserve the brownie? She's like, well, I deserve a shot. And she gives this rather heartbreaking story about being on a diet since she was 19 years old, which sounds miserable. Uh, She talks about her love life being all over the tabloids. That sounds miserable too. And then in this moment of just like melodramatic drama, she says that one day she'll become a sad middle-aged woman who used to be famous. The scene's brilliant. There's this painful vulnerability. And in here... While the characters don't feel sorry for Julia Roberts, spoiler, Hugh Grant ultimately gets the brownie, there's something that's just really sad and tragic about her life. And one of the things that we see in this story is as they're all recounting how miserable and sad their life is, there's this playful camaraderie where they're actually reminding each other of the blessings of their life. Sometimes the blessing is, well, at least you're not me. But they're they're cheering each other up. And spoiler, at the end of the movie, as Hugh Grant has blown it with Julia Roberts' character for like the billionth time, is his friends who remind him of the truth. Like, dude, you had a good thing going for you. Like, this woman is interested in you, and here you are afraid to enter into that
1: relationship. And so these friends suddenly remind him of what is true. It's our job to remind each other of what's true. It's our job to remind ourselves
0: of the Savior of us all, to remind us of God's faithfulness. Your stories of God's faithfulness in your life can encourage other people.
1: You will encourage people when they see you leaping, not when they see you mourning. So leap. There's moments of of just extreme difficulty in people's lives. My aunt
0: broke her back decades ago. Um, In a tragic accident, and the surgeon botched the surgery. He left a sponge in her. Um, She was sick for over a year um, in recovery, and her pain on the pain scale, you know, when they look at that, you know, the really sad face to like the really happy face, she was like right next to the saddest of sad faces, constantly, constantly. And her back deteriorated to the point where she needed another surgery, and she was terrified. How do you go in for surgery after your previous surgeon literally destroyed your back, left a sponge in you, and left you in constant pain?
1: She goes into surgery, super nervous, and she wakes up, and still under the effect of
0: anesthesia, she still realizes that she does not have nearly the same level of pain that she has had for decades. The Lord healed her in that moment. Already healed her in that moment. And while she's not supposed to leap because she's recovering, <laughs> she's been clear that the Lord has done something worth celebrating. Her doctor's a Muslim, and she has testified to the Lord's faithfulness over and over again. One, in how to handle her pain and what she's lived with for decades, but also just the true miracle that has happened by a better
1: than. You could even hope for recovery. My aunt's story is having impact. My aunt's
0: leaping with joy is having impact. And it's not just on the surgeon who has known what she struggled with for decades because he sees her medical chart, but it's her friends, it's her family who
1: are just awestruck by what God has done. What has God done in your life? Where are your opportunities to leap? We've shared a little bit with you over this
0: year that there's a lawsuit, Pioneer High School, against uh, Fellowship of Christian Athletes. And it's, it's a big mess. <laughs> Actually, the trial's coming up this next month. Um, and depending on how it goes, it could end up at the Supreme Court. And the students at Pioneer, the Christian students, are under a tremendous amount of pressure. And it's not hard to be really discouraged
1: and kind of angry about what's happening. But even in the midst of pain and difficulty, God's faithful and he's good. All
0: the Christian teachers at Pioneer have pretty much been too scared to be the club advisors for this Christian club. But because of the lawsuit, the school has to provide advisors. So two non-Christian teachers are now advising the Christian club, which means that my Christian students, our Christian students who are in that club, get to evangelize to their teachers every week. They have a captive audience. That's awesome. Right? So here's something that we could just bemoan. Like, oh, why can't we get Christian teachers in there? Who cares? The gospel is being heard by non-Christian teachers. Let's celebrate that. Something else that's really cool that came out of that tragedy was that the parents of Pioneer High School, including Jenny Cook, uh, we had the opportunity to meet and gather together and just pray over the high school, over the community, over what God's doing. What an awesome opportunity. That's worth leaping about. People coming together to pray over our students. Even when the story, even when the miracle has not come to completion, there's still opportunities for you to celebrate and testify to God's goodness and faithfulness. Still opportunities for you to leap. So my challenge, my encouragement for you this week is to consider where you should be leaping. Are you leaping or are you limping? And if you're limping and you're just genuinely discouraged, that's fair. But who are your friends who are going to share with you and remind you of God's
1: faithfulness? Who are you going to turn to? What stories of leaping are you going to turn to? Will you guys pray with me? Father, it's really easy for us to just become super focused on everything
0: that's wrong in the world, on our circumstances. And it's sinful, when we allow that cynicism to consume us to the point that we no longer see you, that we no longer see what it is that you've done in the world and in our life, that we allow our cynicism to block us from having a place of joy, from proudly and boldly proclaiming to the world that you are God, that you are good, that you take our sorrows and you turn them into joy. And when we're in the midst of our sorrows, you will turn them to joy, either now or for eternity. Lord, we have the opportunity to leap, to leap for what you have done and for what you have promised to do. So Lord, as we finish out this worship service this morning, Lord, will we dance and leap and sing with joy as people who have the tremendous blessing of knowing your love in our lives. And Lord, would we take that joyful, leaping, dancing spirit out of this room and use it to call others to greater faith in you or to call others to faith in you for the very first time. In your name I pray.